0: Hi, uh, Aaron Weinhocht here uh, with the Russian and Eurasian Studies section of the New Books Network. And our guest today is uh, Anthony Kalashnikov, uh, who's written a new book on uh, Stalinist monument building and what that says about how we think about time. And uh, so uh, thanks for being on the show, Anthony.
1: Thank you for having me, Aaron. It's uh, a pleasure to talk about my book.
0: It it generally is. We like talking about books. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, it's a living. <laughs> so uh, maybe before we get going here on the the substance of the book, could you talk a bit about your own academic background, introduce yourself to the audience, and how'd you come to be a historian, study this particular topic, write this particular book, and so on?
1: Um, yeah, so the, the idea for this book actually, uh, goes back, uh, many, many years, uh, and it grows out of an experience that I had as a teenager uh, visiting Moscow. Um, I grew up in a a Russian-speaking family in uh, Edmonton, um, in Canada. And uh, back in 2008, uh, my parents decided to to take their children to see their sort of historic homeland. And this was uh, one of my first times uh, traveling outside of my province, um, let alone to Europe. And um, the, of all the contrasts uh, between Edmonton and Moscow, perhaps the one that stood out to me the most uh, was the, the built environment, um, the monumental architecture, the sort of stately boulevards, the uh, ornate um, metro stations, the imposing high-rises, the public statuary. All of this seemed to speak of a a city that kind of proudly proclaims its world historical importance. Uh, Edmonton never seemed so small and provincial and inconsequential as it did at that time. (laughs) Um, And uh, later on, as I went to college and developed an interest uh, in history, I, uh, I, 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 I realized that the architecture that had attracted me the most Uh, in Moscow was, in fact, uh, that built during the Stalin period. Usually when we think about Soviet architecture, uh, we imagine sort of these um, poured concrete or prefab um, drab buildings that are virtually identical and are kind of um, brutalist and boring and, you know, bare bones. But Stalinist architecture is, is quite opposite from that. And in fact, the, the functionalism uh, of, of, of later Soviet architecture was a response uh, to, to an architectural heritage, which was in fact um, very ornate, um, very lavish, uh, very focused on aesthetics um, rather than functionality. Uh, so these monuments, they, they, these are, are architectural constructions are um, they, uh, they mimic a, a sort of a historicist style. They're very eclectic. They're a mish, mishmash of a neo-renaissance, neoclassical, neo-baroque. Um, they have Gothic elements in them. They have um, elements from Russian vernacular styles. Uh, they're, they're quite colorful, and uh, at least to me as a teenager, uh, they were very um, aesthetically pleasing. They're also built on a very uh, grand scale. Um, some people would call that uh, overbearing, but uh, once again, I, I interpret it as kind of awe-inspiring. Uh, and, and finally, these Stalinist constructions, um, they seem to tell a story. They're, they're overladen with, um, mosaics, with uh, wall paintings, with uh, graffiti uh, drawings, with, um, with all kinds of uh, figurative uh, embellishments uh, like uh, sculpture. Uh, they seem to be saying something about that time uh, in contrast to the more functional type of uh, architecture uh, that uh, both preceded it and post-dated uh, the Stalinist period. But as I, as I learned more about Stalinism, I started wondering whether perhaps in some sense I, I fell victim to some sort of sleight of hand. Um, of course, now we know that uh, in the Stalin period, uh, the archives uh, were manipulated. Uh, people were airbrushed out of, out of photographs. If, um, if they uh, fell from grace or were on the wrong side of history, they were consigned to oblivion. So I wondered, perhaps the converse was also in some sense true. Perhaps these monuments were built, uh, at least in part, in order to give a good witness uh, to posterity about this uh, supposedly glorious era. And so this was sort of the the, the question that I um, was able to pose in, in my doctoral uh, research, and which ultimately um, ended up... Uh, as, as this book.
0: Oh, thank you. Any, anything else you wanted to, to say on that? Or are you ready to get into the substance of the book at this point?
1: Uh, with your permission. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we can go straight to it.
0: Okay. Uh, so, uh, I'm wondering, in general, like you, you make quite a point in the book of talking about how, yeah, there's there's factors specific to Stalinism that promote monument building, but then you're also placing that in a much broader world context where lots of people are building monuments in this period. So it's kind of a big question, but I was wondering if you could comment on, like, what what factors are really specific to the Soviet Union that promote monument building versus what about this period is really influenced by more worldwide kinds of developments that promote that?
1: Sure. Um, So first of all, I I think that we need to step back a little bit um, and uh, define the terms, right? Because monuments can mean a lot of things. Monumentalism can mean a lot of things. It can refer to scale or to the uh, emotional response that it engenders in in the viewer. Um, But when, When I look at monuments in this book, I'm looking at a a very specific uh, subset of monuments. So first of all, uh, I'm looking at at, uh, what's been termed prospective monuments, that is uh, monuments that are oriented on the future, uh, on, on on a future audience, on posterity rather than on contemporaries. Secondly, uh, I'm looking at monuments which uh, purported to memorialize uh, the present rather than the past. So these are monuments that were framed in the discourse of the time uh, in the Stalinist Soviet Union uh, as um, as uh, contributing to to sort of the the gold reserve of Soviet architecture that will be passed down to future generations. Um, they were were referred to as chronicles of the present um, that would be bequeathed uh, to posterity. And finally, um, I look at monuments uh, that even though they might um, memorialize an individual or an event are are fundamentally about uh, collective uh, commemoration, about collective memorialization. So this particular monumental form um, originates sometime in the mid 19th century. Um, it uh, it finds its culmination in the 1920s and 30s, and it tapers off uh, following the Second World War in the Soviet Union uh, and uh, beyond its borders as well. So, why are people interested in, in building monuments for posterity? Uh, why do these societies uh, immortalize uh, their era, or at least uh, try to do so? When I looked at the development, it seemed like there was the specific Soviet case, and then there was the overall context, as you say, of the uh, global interwar period. Um, so I'll, I'll, I'll deal with these uh, two separately so it seemed to me that in this in, in, in the Soviet Union um, these monuments are built in a time of crises and, and that that's um, very interesting to me and, and somewhat counterintuitive uh, these are massive affairs um, I, I'm talking about architectural monuments like uh, subway stations like like um, uh, canal locks like uh, showpiece, uh, sh- showcase uh, residential buildings, uh, national libraries, uh, high-rises. Uh, they demand um, enormous inputs of, of resources, uh, both monetary um, uh, and labor and in terms of the raw materials. And yet they're built uh, in the middle of, of, of crises which affect the country in a very profound way. Uh, so at the very outset of the Stalin period, um, we, we see the proclamation of the competition, design competition for, for the so-called Palace of the Soviets. Uh, this was to be a new uh, seat of government for, for the Soviet Union. It was going to be the largest uh, and tallest building in the world at the time. Uh, and it would be built uh, largely with, uh, with uh, within a sort of traditional uh, aesthetic paradigm, which would have demanded a lot of stone for facing. This was going to be an extremely expensive building. And the competitions for its design were carried out um, amidst the unfolding debacle of forced collectivization. Uh, as we know, this led to, um, to to loss of life in the millions um, in, in uh, the Kazakhstan, in the North Caucasus, and uh, most famously uh, in Ukraine. To take a later example, um, the third phase of Moscow subway construction uh, which saw the creation of, of, a, of a series of very, very opulent uh, subway stations replete with, uh, with mosaics, with frescoes, with uh, stone uh, facing um, of, of, of every type. Uh, these were unveiled, uh, completed and unveiled in the, in the first few uh, disastrous years of the Great, great Patriotic War or, or uh, the Eastern Theater. Of the Second World War. Um, Work was temporarily frozen for a few months after Germany declared war on the Soviet Union but in in fact picked up um, as soon as German soldiers were dislodged uh, from outside of Moscow. And in fact uh, some of the decorations for those subway stations were uh, flown in uh, out of the besieged and blockaded city of Leningrad uh, which at the time was starving, so uh, the regime was clearly prioritizing these these monumental construction projects over um, over other what we might think would be much more uh, urgent uh, needs. And in the postwar period, uh, once again, um, the the sort of the biggest projects are are proposed at times of crises. So the Moscow uh, Stalinist high rises. Um, were commissioned uh, at the height of the post-war famine, which um, claimed tens of thousands uh, of lives. So I guess the million dollar question is, what, what sort of um, function are, are these monuments uh, carrying out? And traditionally, uh, historians have, have, have looked at these monuments um, through a sort of political lens. They've seen them as, as propaganda objects, uh, that are demonstrating the, the power of the state, um, the, the stability of the Stalinist order. But what I'm doing in my book is I'm actually looking at this through a broader cultural lens. Uh, and and uh, what I've done is, is I've discovered a significant amount of evidence to show that the people themselves uh, were in large part in support of this monument building program they yearned to be remembered uh, so so why would they have wanted why would they have supported uh, such colossal expenditures uh, in times of crises? And what I try to argue in the book is that uh, monument building or monument building specifically for posterity uh, materialized and supported the fantasy of national, Uh, survival uh, in a time of crisis. So if we think of a nation as a community that's based in a common identity, uh, then we can appreciate that fundamentally it's anchored in sort of a chain of intergenerational memories uh, in which this identity gets passed down. So this, this chain of memory stretches back into the past uh, to our ancestors and forwards into our future into the future uh, to posterity so in this context the fantasy of a posterity that remembers um, the present uh, is a key aspect of the hope of uh, collective endurance collective survival so, In the context of the Soviet Union specifically, uh, this this fantasy of an enduring nation anchored in in remembering generations, um, materialized in prospective monuments, this responds to at least uh, two sets of of crisis phenomena. Um, One of these is um, the forced-paced modernization uh, that the Stalinist regime embarks on uh, in uh, 1928, uh, with the start of the first uh, five-year plan, this is this is truly an astounding program, astounding program of uh, of breakneck um, industrialization, uh, in the course of which millions of uh, peasants are uh, uprooted from the countryside and they migrate to the cities uh, in order to um, w- build and uh, work in. Uh, new factories, new industries. So they're uprooted. The, the these peasants are uprooted from their traditional social milieu. Families are broken. Uh, they have to adjust themselves to uh, new identities, new values, new political discourses. Um, the The old regime, um, the old cu- the culture of the old regime is. Uh, in a very important sense, uh, in in retreat. Uh, in in the in, in the next decade, approximately, uh, the the cities uh, double in size, uh, approximately speaking. So a lot of individuals are experiencing this this whirlwind of change, um, in in a sort of pathological way. There's social disorientation. There's atomization of individuals. Um, there's what sociologists have termed anomie. And in this context, anchoring these identities, these new identities uh, in a stable community uh, is an effective way of redress for these people. And we see that theorists of nationalism have pointed that out uh, with regards to um, Western Europe, uh, in which the rise of, of the national imaginary, of national community accompanies Um, the Industrial Revolution, and I think that this is broadly transposable uh, to the Soviet experience as well. The national imagination provides a way of anchoring identities and fostering a stable community uh, among atomized individuals. And so building building monuments for an imagined posterity within this context gave the impression that the new national community was indeed solid and that it would endure uh, and that it and it was as stable as the national imaginary purported uh, in a world uh, which was rapidly changing the second set of circumstances in the Soviet Union uh, which support this this um, fantasy of national endurance is the trauma and devastation of the great Patriotic War in a narrow sense the um, we can perhaps see the drive to build monuments for posterity, uh, as part of this, uh, idea of, of symbolic immortality. So, um, servicemen or civilians may die in the course of the war, but they'll live on in memory and this memory will be, um, will be materialized in, in monuments, uh, that, uh, future generations will, uh, pay their respects at. Uh, but I think it also, um, it also acts in, in, a, in a more broader sense, uh, specifically imagining uh, future commemoration, imagining uh, posterity as uh, gratefully remembering wartime sacrifices, uh, meant also imagining, uh, in some sense, um, national survival. Uh, so the fact that there will be a posterity to do the remembering as such suggests that. Um, that the Soviet Union will emerge um, victorious in the war. So these two sets of, of, of crises, phenomena, these two sets of traumas, I think, um, undergird uh, popular support for uh, the program of uh, the immortalization of memory uh, through, 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 through these monuments. Now to kind of step back and look at the broader context of the interwar period. Um,
0: can I can I interrupt you for a second? Yes, of course. Uh, before you before you move to kind of phase two here, uh, the the thing you mentioned where they're they're flying uh, materials out of Leningrad during the siege. I mean, it was really quite a striking uh, moment. You know, I, I I did not know that. You know, before I I read your book and so i you know i was hoping you were gonna you were gonna talk about that um so i guess what i was what i'm wondering is are uh when people say in leningrad you know want to want to be remembered you know during during the war and their you know resources are being thrown out i mean is there an element of fatalism here in that we're all gonna die in this thing but at least somebody else will remember that we did uh, or I don't know, do you think it has a more optimistic or perhaps less, less fatalist, uh, tone than that? Um, I don't know if I'm, if my question is making sense here. I just, I was really struck by that, that, uh, that would be flying materials out of Leningrad rather than in, you know? That...
1: Yeah. Um, I, I, don't know whether it sort of maps on to, to optimism versus pessimism exactly. Uh, but, but what we do know is that the public supports it in some sense, or at least the regime assumes that the public supports uh, these types of of, of policies. Um, they don't. They don't make a secret of the fact that instead of evacuating uh, what could have been uh, children or women or other civilians, uh, that they're that they're taking um, that they're taking mosaics. Uh, by plane, out of uh, out of uh, the starving city, and in fact, um, it's not only covered in the media, but it's also immortalized for posterity. Um, so, the m- subway stations of the uh, of the third phase of construction, the the wartime phase of construction, uh, they have um, pl- memorial plaques affixed to them. Uh, literally saying constructed in the days of the great patriotic war. Uh, So in some sense, the regime uh, believes that the public supports uh, this, this sort of lavish uh, use of resources on, on the construction of monuments. And I think that it's because um, imagining the war uh, as, uh, or sorry, rather imagining posterity's, later recollection of the war um kind of already presupposes a war that is uh th- that is over um and, and and a nation that has has survived in this titanic struggle
0: yeah so we don't we don't know how it's going to end but this will symbolize how we hope it's going to end
1: <laughs> exactly yeah,
0: yeah that, Makes sense. Yeah, it was quite a quite a striking moment in your in your uh, your book there. So, back to back to where we broke off a second ago. Uh, uh, what about the broader world context then?
1: Right. Um, so, in in, in 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 a broader sense, um, as I mentioned at the outset, uh, these types of of monuments um, for posterity uh, that uh, memorialize the national community. They originate uh, sometime in the in the in in the 19th century, um, but within the 19th century, they're often at cross purposes with uh, the memorialization and the and the monumental representation of sovereign power. So rather than monuments that um, commemorate the nation or national heroes, these are monuments that commemorate um, the emperor, or the imperial family. Um, the, the the sort of the personalities uh that rule but throughout the 19th century the pantheon gets broadened uh and in the interwar period um it kind of comes. this type of monumental form kind of comes to comes into its own um with with sort of the idea of of popular sovereignty uh universally accepted pretty much um within both liberal democratic um, and uh, fascist regimes. However, the interwar period um, is also one of, of, of trauma, um, of anxiety, and of crises. And so these monuments, um, they really come out of a response to, uh, first of all, the trauma and devastation of, of, the, of the First World War, uh, the threat of its repetition, Um, as as war once again looms over the European continent, uh, and finally uh, of uh, the economic um, meltdown of the Great Depression. So in terms of um, the the events of of the First World War, uh, nations come out of that with uh, significantly... um, constricted uh view of 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 progress uh this idea that uh that science technology that social betterment advances uh society into into a better future is is questioned uh first and foremost because of the uh, of the devastation of the first world war uh, and the, the role that uh science and technology played in this and this is uh this is sort of um, the, sorry um, the 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 monuments that are built after the war um, by institutions like the Imperial War Graves Commission or the American uh, Battlefield Monuments um, Commission. They uh, once again, like in the Soviet Union during the during the Great Patriotic War, um, they affirm the endurance of the nation by passing on memory to posterity. And this idea of an enduring surviving nation promotes uh, collective healing after uh, the the scars of the war. This sort of idea that um, our boys didn't die in vain. So this is a different vision of of the future. Um, this This vision of the future doesn't focus so much on progress as, um, as a narrowed field of, of uh, national survival, um, of national continuity, of national endurance. Um, and this becomes um, even more apparent uh, as post-war austerity uh, on the continent uh, devolves into a full-blown economic depression. The future becomes viewed uh, with, with anxiety, uh, with fear, Rather than uh, with the expectation of something uh, better coming out of it, and so once again, constructing monuments in the context of the of the Great Depression, um, which we see uh, both in, in in fascist dictatorships and in liberal democracies, it promotes the idea of a stable uh, of a stable order, a, uh, an enduring nation. Uh, at a time of, um, of anxiety and these monuments, uh, in fact, in liberal democracies, uh, are, are by no means, um, more diminutive in, in, in their scale or ambition than, than those found in the Stalinist Soviet Union or, or, um, in the, in the fascist dictatorships. So, We have uh, the monuments, for instance, of of the Works Progress Administration in in America. Thousands of objects are constructed um, and their brief uh, is is largely to do with creating monuments uh, to, to national strength and national endurance. Uh, anything as small as, um, and humble as, as the neoclassical post offices, for instance, that were built all over America in the 30s um, are, are framed as, uh, as uh, testaments to future generations. Um, the National Gallery of Art, for instance, that's built in at this time uh, is the largest marble clad building in the world. Uh, the Pentagon, uh, largest office building in the world, and it's meant to house the National Archives. So once again, this is a commemorative project uh, of enormous scale. Mount Rushmore is completed in, at, uh, uh, in, uh, in these years as well. Uh, the Hoover Dam, um, this, is, this is a, a large uh, monumental infrastructural project, which is adorned with sculpture and various art. Um, and uh, very apparently is is also framed as a monument. They even have a uh, an astronomical clock there, uh, which marks the the precise. Uh, Date and even the time of the of the dam's unveiling and the media coverage that goes along with this um, could have been really lifted out of out of out of Soviet newspapers describing Soviet monuments. They, it talks about how this dam will be there for hundreds and hundreds of years and how people will come and visit, um, you know, in 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 in, in millennia, and uh, how this is, is sort of a testament to the strength of um, the American nation. So, in in both the Soviet Union and uh, beyond its borders, in 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 a period um, in which hope in the future is uh, severely tested, uh, you see this growth of of these um, prospective monument building uh, on a very large scale, um, which proposes an alternative uh, an, an alternative way of relating to the future, one which is. Um, more steeped in uh, ideas of stability, uh, ideas of continuity, uh, ideas of nationhood uh, rather than of um, positive social transformations. Well,
0: that's very interesting that uh, um, that this would happen simultaneously with the idea of the great Break, which is the opposite of continuity. <laughs>
1: Well, um, in the Soviet Union, it, it it somewhat postdates the Great Break, so perhaps the the, the, the sort of the crisis phenomenon are are enlar- can can be traced to the policies uh, of the Great Break policies like collectivization, uh, breakneck industrialization, um, but the turn to to commemoration to continuity uh, that actually begins a little bit later that become, begins in um, in one thousand, nine hundred and thirty one. Uh, with with the competitions for for the construction of the palace, of the Soviets, which I mentioned, um, and they postdate uh, the 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 promises of the Great Break, which are are at this very same time, in fact, retired. So the Great Break promises um, to uh, to launch the Soviet Union into a new um, more radical approach to the construction of communism. Um, but uh, in 1930, 1931, the industry is uh, very much disorganized, uh, these utopian schemes, these, this idea of uh, overperforming the plan, um, they're critically uh, assessed by the party, and the party tries to kind of put a damper on, on, um, on this uh, utopian uh, promise of the great break.
0: So,, um, you're talking about the idea of commemoration in general, right That's the really the backdrop for these uh, these monuments, which which gets me to wonder, and then, um, what does it mean to have a culture of time? You, you talk about that quite a bit in the in the book. Like if we're saying we have a we have a particular culture of time or a more specifically Stalinist culture of time, uh, what, what, what kinds of sensibilities is it that, that, that we're talking about here?
1: Well, I suppose abstractly a culture of time is the way that we imagine, relate to, and experience the categories of past, present, and future. Um, and politics, in, in an important sense, intervenes in, in how those categories are shaped. Uh, so in the Soviet Union, in specific, um, we can see the sort of uh, intervention in the culture of time that the Bolsheviks um, make in in 1917 is to uh, is to say that history is organized uh, teleologically; uh, it's organized in in stages, and that these stages progress from one to the other by way of revolution, and that they end in. Um, the highest stage of development, which is communism. Uh, The Stalinist culture of time um, rewrites this narrative uh, in important ways. And there's a historical debate as to what exactly uh, Stalinism is doing in in revising this sort of Marxist-Leninist schema. So some historians might say that um, the Stalinist Soviet Union uh, is revising uh, the idea of uh, radical shifts uh, between historical epochs um, and that it's toning down the iconoclasm um, of, of, of the revolution. So rather than this hostile attitude towards the past, the Stalinist Soviet Union introduces a more conciliatory uh, view towards heritage, towards uh, the past and tries to take um, status traditions, national traditions uh, and to carry, that, that were prevalent in, in, in Imperial Russia and carry them over uh, into the present and, and into the future. Others say that the Stalinist uh, Soviet Union was engaging in um, in a sort of... Uh, Politics of, of 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 eternity, in other words, that it, that uh, rather than promising that the utopian the the, the utopia is uh, is something in the future uh, that people should be working towards, uh, in a sort of totalitarian sense, it it claimed that the um, that the future was in the main already reached, that utopia had been in the main already built. Uh, and so the future kind of became, became um, superimposed on the present um, and consummated uh, in, 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 in Stalinism. Um, in my book, uh, I um, try to combine these models in some sense uh, or synth- synthesize a new one uh, saying that the future was still an important category uh, for the Stalinist regime, for its cultural uh, incarnations, uh, but that this future no longer gravitated towards the idea of communism. Uh, Stalinist culture didn't actually talk too much about communism uh, in, its, uh, in its official documents, in its cultural um, artifacts, uh, but that this uh, idea of the future now revolved more on, um more around the idea of of posterity uh, of future generations these sort of uh biosocial uh, uh concepts
0: you you've kind of started to answer this already but you you might have some more to say about it I think that um You've, you've argued here that, uh, Stalinist monument construction ultimately arises from fear about the future rather than confidence about it. And, uh, so I guess I'm wondering in specific, so if you're, uh, if you're living in the Soviet Union in the, you know, late thirties, let's say, or, or the, the late forties, perhaps, um, what is it about these monuments that, uh, you know, perhaps gives you some confidence in spite of fears arising from your specific circumstance. If you walk up to one of those monuments, what is it about the specific architecture of it that might help counteract that fear?
1: Well, um, if if we think of a specific uh, uh, Stalinist monument uh, and its um, sort of artistic qualities, then I think what jumps out, uh, first of all, is its uh, durability and there is um there's a fair amount of uh of, of research that is going on uh into um durable construction into uh, how do we make uh materials that were, will withstand the years how will we um how will we um face the, the monument or, or in, in architectural terms uh, to, to make sure that it doesn't need too much repairs? How do we varnish it? How do we coat it? How do we make sure that it's there for forever? And this um, is apparent when you look at it. I mean, these monuments are are um, made of, or at least faced with granite, with marble, uh, but it's also um, it's also talked about, about quite a bit in the press. So when a person views this monument, um, they, they see it as a sort of a zone, which is, uh, in some sense, extra-temporal, right? Everything around it might change, uh, but this particular physical object is, in some sense, beyond time. Um, it will be there even when, when, when everybody passes away and when the, the urban cityscape will be fundamentally uh, reconstructed. And I think that that, uh, that is an important sort of compensatory um, island uh, in a sea of, of, of very radical change. Um, the urban fabric has become, is, is completely um, redesigned at this time. Uh, in the 1930s, this happens through uh, top-down urban reconstruction plans, and in the war, um, it's further accelerated by the, by the devastation and destruction that's, that's wrought on it. I'm not sure that this answers your question directly, Um, but I do think it goes goes some way to to, to pointing out the specificity of these monumental spaces.
0: I'm gonna go out on a limb here a little bit. We'll see what happens. But uh, um, as you were talking there, it it occurred to me, is there some sense in which we could see an experience of one of those monuments as kind of iconic where, you know, we're 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 given a glimpse of what the you know what the future might be, even if that's not where we are right now. I mean, iconic in the kind of religious sense, you know, where we're we're we've got this, you know, uh, seeing through a glass darkly kind of moment. Am I am I going too far here? Reading too much into it?
1: Um, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, it does provide a glimpse of the future. It's just a very narrow one, right? Um, and, and the contrast is all the more apparent with, um, with the way that the future was, was talked about in the 1920s in the Soviet Union. So you have uh, very, very detailed uh, accounts of what, the com- what communism would look like, what the future would look like. You have that in literature, you have that in film. Uh, there's, a, there's a utopian current um, in, in all genres of, and, and mediums of art uh but in in the 1930s um this this utopian tradition is, is is cut off very rapidly um so let's say in in literature um there's not a single utopian novel that's published from 1931 to 1957 uh in in the Soviet Union uh it becomes a political liability to say specific things about the future and this is in part of course uh, because the party is claiming uh, to have a monopoly on, on talking about what the future would look like, uh, but also because the party actually realizes that talking about the communist future is, is, is a political liability uh, in and of itself, that uh, painting these bright pictures of communism uh, only throws into relief uh, the inadequacies of the present uh, even more. Uh, and it actually underscores the failures of the party, uh, the failures of the ruling regime, uh, rather than uh, motivates labor with pictures of, of the promised land. Uh, so as the regime stops uh, giving these, or allowing uh, for these um, full and detailed accounts of what the future would look like, uh, the, the perception of the future narrows quite a bit, and it narrows to this idea of future generations, of posterity, uh, which will gratefully remember the glorious uh, Stalin era. Um, and they talk ab- ab- about that a lot more than about um, communism or, or technological advances or, or, or the way society would look like uh, in, in the coming decades and centuries. And in some sense, this, this sort of ambiguity and opacity of these terms is intentional. Uh, anybody can project whatever they want privately onto the idea of, of, of posterity or of future generations or onto, onto these monumental spaces and, and what they'll look like, um, when, um, when posterity comes to pay homage, uh, at them.
0: I think at, uh, at this point, I ought to ask you, um, one of the about one of the points that comes up late in your book which is uh, you got a pretty interesting discussion in there that about how they think the designer of these monuments have in some senses achieved their aims in the present day about how you know those those monuments uh, have endured and have uh lived out some of their designers hopes. so how, how have they how have they done that
1: right um yeah, in, in 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 the book's epilogue, I do speculate that um, perhaps uh, the the gamble on influencing the way that posterity will view this era has has paid off. Um, so, for one thing, these monuments have have resisted uh, in large part uh, iconoclastic campaigns against them. Um, so, in the in the nineteen sixties, and then again in the in the early nineteen nineties, um, first with the Khrushchev de-Stalinization campaign, and finally with the with the de-Stalinization campaign that accom- accompanied the fall of the Soviet Union, um, these monuments uh, were to a certain extent demolished, but a large part of them survived. So, sculptural representations of of Stalin, of his closest henchmen, uh, these were um, removed, destroyed. Um, Taken to statue parks, um, whatever. But uh, the sort of the architectural monumental bedrock for for these um, sculptural decorations that largely survived. So Stalinist metro stations look more or less the same as they did uh, in that period. Stalinist high rises are still there. Stalinist um, apartments and uh, the boulevards that um, that were designed at that point uh, at that point. Uh, they're still standing. And of course, it would be impractical to think of a way of, of um, demolishing or destroying them. They're, they're there in part because of their vastness, uh, which was at least in part how, how the designers of these monuments um, uh, thought of them, that you can, you can read a book, if you don't like it, you bring it to back to the library, but a architectural monument uh, is permanent. It will always stand uh, in the city uh they've also preserved uh through their size through their vastness they've preserved uh their sort of visual presence in the city uh they're um they're often the, the tallest the largest the most uh, visually attractive buildings in moscow um they're uh they're considered quite um aesthetically successful there's opinion polls showing that uh urbanites prefer uh, say Stalinist uh, metro stations to to later ones. Um, the the market also suggests that um, Stalinist real estate is more sought after than uh, than even uh, newer developments. Uh, and uh, in fact, a lot of newer developments uh, in Russia mimic the Stalinist style uh, and and um, quite uh, self consciously promote themselves as as following it. So. As as sort of aesthetic objects, uh, these these Stalinist monuments have survived. They are um, they retain their attractiveness. Uh, in terms of their sort of memorial efficacy, uh, I think they also continue to play uh, a role in the way that um, in Russia at least uh, society uh, looks back on the Stalinist period. So, for one thing, uh, the narratives. That they um, that through which they're read uh, have uh, to a large degree uh, retained um, their recognizability and path dependence. So, for instance, the the the, the dominant narrative of the Great Patriotic War uh, is in many respects quite aligned with with the Stalinist narrative of the Great Patriotic War, which emphasizes uh, national heroism, um, national unity. Um, military prowess and and sidelines ideas like, uh, collaborationism, uh, the history of war crimes, the idea of, uh, incompetent, uh, leadership. So these, these monuments continue to be the sites of, um, of, uh, wartime commemoration, um, they also, in some sense, are still read as testaments to uh, national greatness. Um, the you know monuments uh, that were built in the Stalin period to Russian scientists, to Russian cultural figures—they they still uh, retain um, retain their presence, their visibility, and they support this idea of of um, the Stalin period as being one of uh, cultural uh, and national uh, rebirth they also uh, promote a sort of um, imperial uh, ideology which uh, underscores the centrality of Russia in the post-soviet space uh, and this is, is is viewed not only in the way that they um, that they interact with um, with with these narratives today but also with opposition to these narratives so for instance in in 2014 2015 um, Uh, There was a series of protest actions uh, in the course of which one of the Stalinist high rises uh, was um, scaled by activists and they unfurled uh, the Ukrainian flag on top of it. So this sort of opposition to Russian uh, meddling in Ukraine um, attempted to underscore continuities uh, between Stalinist, uh, Stalinist imperial policies, Stalinist imperial narratives, uh, and um, Russian uh, political uh, culture and policies uh, today. Of course, this this perhaps says more about continuities in in historical narratives uh, than than in the sort of actual agency and efficacy of of these Stalinist monuments. But I do think that that these Stalinist monuments also uh, have a sort of a an independent um, role to play uh, in contemporary commemorative dynamics in Russia. So first of all, they they kind of predispose themselves to particular readings. Um, They have a lot of of, uh, synthetic art. Um, They have a lot of epigraphy, that is, you know, inscriptions. Looking at them, it's very clear who who they claim to be the good guys and who they claim to be the bad guys, so to speak. Um, And so they predispose themselves to a particular way of reading uh, reading these monuments um, in a way that is conducive to narratives of Russian nationalism, conducive to narratives of Russian statism, uh, and conducive to the Russian uh, imperial project. They um, they're also very hard to sort of re-signify and put to uh, other uses and and perhaps that's why um, that's what's conditioned responses of iconoclasts uh, to these monuments beyond uh, Russia's borders. Uh, rather than trying to recontextualize and re-signify these monuments, they've instill- instead opted to demolish them wholesale because it's very hard uh, to re-signify something which is so. Um, which so powerfully uh, sort of promotes a specific narrative. But perhaps most importantly, these monuments act as, uh, as material evidence um, about the era um, in a way that emotionally uh, works a lot more powerfully uh, than abstract historical narratives. Uh, particularly for people who have grown up um, after, after Stalinism or, or and even more so uh, after the fall of the Soviet Union. So opinion polls um, show sentiments like uh, among Russian youth uh, that, that go along the lines of, yes, we know about Stalinism and, and its crimes, but hey, at least we have uh, the world's best subway system, uh, thanks to Stalin. So this sort of
0: um, even Stalin made the trains run on time.
1: Yeah, something along those lines. Exactly. Uh, so it's it's sort of the incommensurability of of these material traces and the immaterial narratives that makes uh, positive, puts gives an advantage to positive uh, self representations of Stalinism uh, and disadvantages uh, the sort of textbook histories of, uh, Stalinist crimes. So I think in that sense, these objects, um, are still playing an important and, and perhaps dangerous part, um, in, in telling posterity about Stalinism, which is precisely what they were intended to do.
0: Huh. Uh, is very, uh, in light of that, I think I'm gonna have to go back and reread the end of your, uh, end of your book again. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's, uh, uh, that's uh, interesting stuff there about the contemporary, you know, significance of those. Um, maybe, maybe one, we got time for one last, uh, uh, question here. And so I'm, I'm wondering in light of your completion of this book, uh, what you're working on now? What's, uh, what's next?
1: Yeah. So, um, the, the new project, uh, actually grows out in some sense of, uh, out of the, out of this book. Um, in the course of my research, I, I kind of discovered that uh, communism was not always the main uh, way of relating to the future uh, in the Soviet Union. And uh, the, the next project, um, would like to push this idea a little bit further uh, and examine um, when, when communism was sort of the the amplitudes of communism, when it it was deemed important by the party, when it was deemed unimportant by the party, uh, when when were utopian uh, ideas um, propagandized uh, and when were they sort of restrained. Uh, I'd also like to look at the changing idea of what communism would look like in and of itself. Uh, So we have these sort of classical Marxist-Leninist definitions of what communism would look like, classless, uh, global, stateless society of non-alienated laborers, um, but the specifics actually um, uh, changed. Uh, throughout the Soviet period. Communism was a sort of a moving goalpost and what communism, what the communist future was supposed to look like in 1920 was different from what it was supposed to look like in 1980. Uh, And so I'm looking at um, regime uh, censorship and regime control over utopian science fiction literature uh, in order to to look at uh, how and when uh, communism, uh, the the communist future uh, was a welcome theme uh, when it was repressed, uh, and uh, the changing ways in which the party sought to uh, portray um, the future. Well,
0: that sounds like a, a cool project. You've uh, reminded me that I should sit down and reread Bogdanov's uh, Red Star. Yeah, that was <laughs> yeah it's fun book.
1: It, it is a fun one, isn't it? And in, in some sense, uh, it's aged well.
0: Yeah, that's, uh, no, I'll, well, when you, uh... Uh, when you get it finished, give me a shout maybe we can talk about that one too.
1: <laughs> I'd love to.
0: All right. Well, I think we've, uh, about run out of our hour. So thanks for, uh, uh, thanks for taking the time to talk to us.
1: Thank you for having me, Aaron.